Romans chapter 14 this morning. Romans chapter 14. We'll start in verse number 1. I want to speak to you today on the topic, pay attention to your own game. Romans chapter 14, verse number 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall, In our brother's way. Father God, thank you for your word. I pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit now. Cleanse me, Lord. I'm uh, aware that there is nothing good in me. That there's no ability that I have to proclaim this well. And so I pray the Holy Spirit would take over. Be our teacher today. Help me to say the things I ought to and not say anything I ought not. And help, Lord, the word of God to, to land right where it needs to today. I pray it would be effective, and I pray, Lord, that uh, all of us would think about this. For, Father, we're really where the rubber hits the road now in this letter to the Romans. And I pray that we would uh, we'd see it, and we'd be changed by it, and that you'd help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans 12 and 13, Paul's been talking a lot about how we interact with others, both with believers and unbelievers. And here in chapter 14 now, he, he, I believe, narrows his focus. Everything in chapter 14 has to do with how we interact with other Christians. He answers some questions for us here which are quite timely. How should a Christian uh, react toward other Christians who have a different set of standards than they do? What if I think it's perfectly okay for a believer to participate in a certain thing? But you think it's not. How should you react toward me? And how should I behave toward you? Perhaps it would be more accurate to say, rather than the fact that he's talking about different standards here, maybe it would be more accurate to say that he's talking about Christians who are at different levels of maturity in their Christian walk. If I were to look around the congregation in any Bible-believing church, and this one would be the case too, I would find some who have been saved for many, many, many years. And I would find some who have been saved for a much shorter period of time, maybe only weeks or months. 
I would find some who are faithful to reading their Bible that have a vibrant prayer life. I might also find some who (laughs) never open your Bible and seldom pray. I would find some who are growing in their faith and some who are stagnant. I would find some who are mature and some who are babies. I believe it is this diversity that the Apostle Paul is describing here for us uh, in this chapter. And he is specifically and interestingly aiming his comments at the more mature Christians. That's his real target, at least in this first half. Those who are the ones who would call themselves the strong. Now, this is the last major issue that Paul addresses in Romans. We've been in Romans for a long time, and we're coming to the very end of it now. Uh, Here in chapter 14, he begins his last major issue. And uh, once he finishes this section, he's going to talk a little bit about his plans, where he's planning to go. And then we'll get to chapter 16. He's just going to talk about a whole bunch of different people, a lot of uh, greetings and salutations that he's sending to various individuals. And so uh, those two chapters will probably go relatively quickly. But here in this last part, he is dealing with this last issue. And uh, it's interesting that this is the longest amount of, of, of space that he gives to any issue in this last part of, of the book of Romans. So it's important. As we look at chapter 14, we see that he makes two major points, both of which address the issue, how do I relate to other Christians, especially those who are less mature in the faith than I am. In the first half, that's the part we're going to talk about today, in the first half, He says the mature believer needs to pay attention to his own gain. Interestingly, in the second half, he says the mature believer needs to pay attention to the other guy's gain. They seem to be contradictory, but I think we'll find out that they're not. So let's examine that first part today. Pay attention to your own game. Look at verse number one. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. The English Standard Version puts that verse like this. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. And the NIV says this, except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. Accept them. That's the command. Accept them. This opening verse is the theme for the entire section, and the entire section actually spans all the way through Romans chapter 14 and halfway through Romans chapter 15. And uh, all of it is about that. Accept them. Receive one who is weak in the faith. I don't know if you know this or not, but we're all different. Are you aware of that? Uh, I'm kind of thankful for that, actually. We're not clones, and we're all different. If you look around the room in any church gathering, you're going to find that that becomes clear. We're all different. You're going to find some who can sing and lead worship. Thank God for that. You're going to find some who can teach and preach the, uh, the, the glories of God's Word, and thank God for that. You're going to find some who are mechanically apt, and they can keep the building going and the air conditioning on and the heat running and all those important things. Some are fastidious and keep the Lord's house clean. Some are creative and keep the Lord's house beautiful. Some are evangelistic and keep the Lord's house full. Some are quietly prayerful. And we probably won't know about their, their usefulness until we get to heaven and see what has happened as a result of that. But all different. All different. And we thank God for that diversity, don't we? And yet along with all the positives that come from that diversity, there are also some things that we would say are problems. We tend to praise God for the gifts others bring, but we also have this annoying and sinful tendency to disapprove of things in their lives that are just not quite the way we would do them. 
We might accept them, but with conditions. We want them to believe like us. We want them to behave like us. We want them to dress like us. We want them to speak like us. We want them to sing like us. We want them to read out of the same Bible version as us. And when they don't, well, we get a little bit peeved. Our lips curl a little bit. And the acceptance becomes strained, doesn't it? In his commentary on Romans, James Montgomery Boyce told a story on my favorite preacher of all time, and that's Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was an interesting guy, if you ever have a chance to read more about him. Uh, Here's what he said about him. He said, Charles Spurgeon was the greatest preacher of his age, but he was frequently criticized for being funny. When one woman objected to the humor he inserted into his sermons, Spurgeon told her, Madam, you would think a great deal better of me if you knew the funny things I kept out. Spurgeon was a character. A young man asked what he should do about a box of cigars he had been given, and Spurgeon solved his problem. He said, give them to me, and I will smoke them to the glory of God. You know, Charles Spurgeon did smoke cigars, but there came a day when he was walking down the road. This is the truth. He was walking down the road, and he saw a sign in a cigar shop that said, buy the brand of cigars that Spurgeon smokes, and he never smoked another one. He said that was not the witness he wanted to have. But nonetheless, on another occasion, Spurgeon was criticized for traveling to meetings in a first-class railway carriage. His antagonist said, Mr. Spurgeon, what are you doing up here? I'm riding back there in the third-class carriage, taking care of the Lord's money. And Spurgeon replied, and I am up here in the first-class carriage, taking care of the Lord's servant. Differences. He was different than a lot of people thought he ought to have been. And those differences are the issue I think Paul is addressing in this section. He's talking about two classes of people. He's talking about some that he calls weak. He's talking about some that he calls strong. And in describing these two groups, he draws upon some issues. And let's just mention those issues quickly. They're they're really not the main point. They're just illustrations that he uses, but they they help us to see where he's going. The first issue is seen in verses 2 through 3. Verses 2 and 3. One believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So this first issue had to do with variations in diets that were apparently a concern to some. Apparently some believed they needed a vegetarian lifestyle as Christians. I think there's some who still think that today, but uh, that's what was apparently going on. I'm not sure why. Paul doesn't explain why they believed that. It's possible, although we certainly can't say, it's possible that it had to do with the uh, meat offered to idols issue from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we talked about that when we were in Corinthians. But he doesn't say for sure, and so we don't know. And it doesn't really matter anyway, because Paul's point is not that. This is just an illustration of his point. He was simply discussing, pointing out the fact that there were differences, and some struggled with scruples about those different issues. Some believed in it, some didn't. And his command was clear, whether regardless of where you fall on the issue, Christians are to accept those other Christians who might fall on the other side of the issue. He said here, if you are a strong Christian who knows that our faith has nothing to do with food or drink, you ought not to look down on the scruples of the weaker ones who do. And if you are the weaker Christian who has not yet come to grips with the grace of God in areas such as this, you ought not to judge the ones who have. He gives another example. Another example in verses 5 through 8. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. As with the eating of meat here, he's talking about 
the observance or lack of observance of certain days here, and it's merely an example of his larger point. He's not explaining why this is an issue. Apparently there were some who thought that it was important that they continue to observe some of the Jewish holy days and things like that, a carryover from the Old Testament. And there were others who didn't. The weaker believers still felt the pull of those religious requirements. And again, Paul is merely saying, he's not explaining why that was an issue or if it was even an important issue. He's just saying there are people who have these differences of opinions. What's his point? We ought to accept them, regardless of where we fall. And you can probably think of uh, things that are more relevant to us today than those. But the thing that he's trying to say is, regardless of the issue, whether you believe you're on the strong side of the equation or whether you think you're on the weak side of the equation, you are to accept and receive those whose understanding of it differs from your own. Romans 14.1 is an imperative. It's a command. It's not something that we can say, oh, I don't accept. No, 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 no. It's a command. We are all to look at Romans 14.1 and say, okay, I am to accept them. So the first thing I wanted to see this morning is that imperative. Accept them. Accept them. But then he gives us a couple of reasons why. And maybe this will help us. First of all, he says we need to accept them because God has accepted them. God has accepted them. Verse number three, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. You probably ought to circle that little phrase, God has received him in your Bible. It's very important. One reason for receiving others, even if they have different scruples about things than we, is because God has received them. How ridiculous for us to say, I'm not going to receive them when God has. I suppose one of the hardest things in my life to get my mind around is that other Christians don't work for me. Other Christians don't work for you. They don't answer to me. They don't answer to you. Paul says here very clearly that they all answer to the same king and to him alone. Other Christians are not my servants, nor are they yours. They, like you, serve the one king and savior. Uh, Walvert, in his commentary on this, put it like this. He said, one Christian is not above another as his judge. All are equally under Christ, the judge. And so we're not to judge another whom God has already accepted and who belongs to him. And neither are we to think less of such because they have a different set of scruples about things than we do. None of us is to answer to anybody except God. If we all concentrated on pleasing him, think how much more peace there would be in the church of Jesus Christ. I've told you before about the Disney movie Miracle. It's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen in my life, about one of the greatest sporting events that has ever taken place in the history of mankind, and that was the 1980 Olympic hockey team. Uh, just spectacular. I could wax eloquent about that wonderful team. But in that movie, there is a scene where one of the players is concerned about the performance of a teammate, and Coach Herb Brooks fixes this stern gaze at him, and he says this, you worry about your own game. There's enough there to keep you busy. And you know, I think that could be the theme of what Paul is talking about in these first few verses of chapter 14. You worry about your own game. There's enough there to keep you busy. You see, we're all on the same team. 
I recently picked up a copy of Erwin Lutzer's book entitled One Minute After You Die. Actually, I got it just yesterday at the, uh, at the men's conference. and I can't wait to read that book, One Minute After You Die. But Jesus gave a glimpse into that minute in Luke chapter 16 with the story of the rich man who was in hell one minute after he died and Lazarus who was in paradise one minute after he died. And in that story, there's a, there's a, a discussion of this great gulf that exists between paradise and hell. That great gulf that exists there between the rich man in hell and the Lazarus. And uh, it's a sad thought. But you know what we like to do as Christians? We like to move that gulf. We like to take that great chasm and move it between us and other Christians. And that's what Paul is warning against. There is no chasm between us and other Christians. We're all on the same team. We're all on the same team. Now, I, I have to stop here for a minute and make this important distinction because we, we, have to, we have to make sure we understand one thing or we could really go far astray in interpreting this particular passage. Paul is talking here about people who are on the same team. Paul is talking here about Christians, only Christians. And I think even more specifically, he's talking about Christians who are really striving to serve the Lord. I don't think he's talking about Christians who are uh, nominal in their faith who are unwilling to try to serve Christ, who are just kind of coasting along and playing as believers. I don't think that is all. I don't think he's talking about unrepentant Christians, Christians who are striving and unwilling to give up sin. I I don't think that's it at all. I think the assumption that ties it all together here is that we're talking about a group of believers who all want to serve Christ, who to the best of their ability, regardless of their scruples about uh, disputable things, want to serve Christ. And I think this point comes out clearly in verses 5 through 8. If you look at that passage right there, you'll see how many times he uses that little phrase, in the Lord, or to the Lord, rather, to the Lord. He uses it six times in that section. And so he's not talking about worldly believers here who just ignore the demands of Scripture and don't want to serve and live for Christ. He's not talking about those who refuse to repent of their sin and live separated lives for Christ. He's talking about Christians who love the Lord and to the best of their ability are trying to live for the Lord. And those are the ones, he says, we are to receive. We are to accept. Because we're all striving in the same way to serve the same Lord. Verse number 8, Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And that's the point in understanding, or that's the key in understanding, verse number 5, I think it is. Verse number 5, Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. We could really go astray with that verse. We could really take that one and run with it. And some people today would. Some people today would say, oh, that, that uh, you know, is the, the, the thought of the day, that everything is relative. That is the thought of today, that truth is what I want it to be. Let every man be fully convinced. That's not what he's saying at all. It's not what he's saying at all. And if we understand that he is talking about within the context of, we're talking about believers who love the Lord and who together are trying to strive for serving him. Those are the ones he's saying, let them be fully convinced in their own mind. One man put it like this. He said, the individualism in that verse in Romans chapter 14 is the holy and healthful thing. It is only because it is Christian. It is developed not by the assertion of self, but by individual communion with Christ. And so another reason for receiving others, he said, is even if even if they have different scruples about things than us is because they are striving to serve Christ as we are. We're all on that same team and he has accepted them. There's another little vignette from the movie Miracle. I don't remember if I've ever shared this one with you or not. but You know, that 1980 Olympic hockey team was composed of young men from various colleges around the country. 
they had all been opponents. They had all played against each other. They had all basically hated each other. They were, they were enemies. And they had all come together now on this one team. And, of course, that was causing troubles. There was rivalries that were coming to the fore, and people were struggling with that. In one particularly memorable scene in this movie, uh, they had played a little scrimmage game beforehand, and they lost it. And they lost it primarily because they were not playing as a team. And so Coach Herb Brooks lined them all up on the line afterwards. Instead of letting the tired men go to the locker room after the game was over, he lined them all up, and he said he made them start skating back and forth between the two baselines. And they skated, and they skated, and they skated, and they skated, back and forth, and back and forth. He wouldn't let them stop. And then every once in a while, he would stop them. He'd blow his whistle and stop them, and he'd say, he'd point out one of them, and he'd say, who do you play for? And no one would say, I play for the University of Boston, or something like that. He'd blow the whistle again, and he'd say, again, and back and forth, they'd race back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. And he'd blow the whistle, and he'd look at another one, and he'd say, who do you play for? I play for Bowling Green University, and back and forth, and back and forth. This went on. For what seemed hours, they turned the lights out in the stadium. They didn't. They were trying to kick them out, and he would not let them stop. And they went back and forth. They were barfing all over the place. They were having all kinds of. They were almost dead. And finally, he said, "Who do you play for?" And Michael Arruzzioni, the captain of the team, said, "I play for the United States of America." And he said, "Good." And they all went crawling to the locker room. Folks, sometimes we need to remember who we play for. We play for the same team. Regardless of our scruples about little issues, regardless of whether or not we have differences of opinions about the minor things of the faith, we're on the same team. We all play for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, accept them because Jesus himself has accepted them and because we play on the same team. And then secondly, he says, we need to accept them because we all will answer to the same judge. Verse number four again, who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Verse number ten, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. A couple more phrases are you want to circle in your Bible. You might want to circle that phrase, who are you? That's a good one to circle. You might also want to circle that little phrase, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We kind of touched on this earlier, but bears repeating. It's not our responsibility to judge other believers. Christ has reserved that to himself. The judgment seat of Christ is where we'll be judged for how we have lived as Christians. Every Christian will give a reckoning at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there are several judgments that are mentioned in the Bible. Maybe we should review a couple of them. One of them is called the Great White Throne Judgment. It's talked about in Revelation chapter 20. It is a judgment not for Christians, but only for the lost. If you find yourself before the judgment or for the Great White Throne Judgment, uh, it's because you have put off believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because you never turned your life over to Him and you died. And it was too late, and now you're before the great white throne judgment. There is only one verdict at the great white throne, and that is guilty. And there is only one sentence at the great white throne, and that is hell. There is nothing else that comes out of the great white throne judgment. My friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, that's your future. No, I would, <laughs> I would do anything I could think of to do to convince you to turn from that 
and turn to Christ. Don't go there. But this other judgment, this other judgment that we want to talk about, and these are just two that are mentioned in Scripture. There are others, but we'll just talk about these two. The other one he mentions here is called the judgment seat of Christ. And it is a judgment that is not for the lost, but only for the saved. Great white throne, only for the lost. Judgment seat of Christ, only for the saved. It's an event that's also mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3. It's a judgment that's not about salvation. Our sin was judged on the cross as believers. We'll never be judged for that again. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1. We already saw this. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. We're never going to be judged for our sin. But it is a judgment for our works. It is a time when we come face to face with our Savior. And uh, He takes a look at what we have done for Him. How we have lived for Him. Believers who have trifled away their walk with Christ on this earth are going to experience loss there. I don't know what that means. I just know I don't want to find out. I know there are some people who talk about the judgment seat of Christ and they'll say it is a place that is only filled with joy. It is a place that is only a a place of the Lord doling out awards and rewards for your service for Him. Certainly that's part of it. But to say that there is nothing negative about it is to ignore Paul's words, words like terror, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, he said, referring to that judgment. Words like loss. He used that word as well. I don't think for a minute we as believers should dread standing before Christ. I can't wait for that day, can you? What a day that will be. When my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day. Glorious day that will be. It's, it's joy. I'm not trying to get you to be afraid of standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be glorious. But there's going to be a moment when He's going to fix His gaze upon you. And I don't know exactly what that moment is going to be. But I know there's something where He's going to look at you and demand an accounting. I wonder, are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? Because all of us are going to stand there. One man said, they have been He's speaking about the judgment seat of Christ. He said, they have been justified by faith. They have been united to their glorious head. They shall be saved, according to 1 Corinthians 3.15, whatever be the fate of their work. But what will the Lord say to their work? What have they done for him in labor and witness and above all in character? He, he will tell them what he thinks. He will be infinitely kind. He could be nothing else. But he will not flatter And somehow, surely, it doth not yet appear how, but somehow, eternity, even the eternity of salvation, will bear the impress of that award, the impress of the past of service estimated by the king. What shall the harvest be? And all this shall take place. This is the special emphasis of the prospect here. With a solemn individuality of inquiry, every one of us, for himself, shall give account. And so Paul says here that that judgment seat of Christ should motivate us. It certainly should motivate us to serve the Lord. There's no doubt about it. He said uh, that the terror of the Lord uh, persuaded him to persuade men. It motivated him. But here in our text, what he's saying is it should motivate us to accept others. Because they're going to stand before the same judgment seat. They're going to be judged by the same judge that we are. That's the person that we are going to have to do with. And that's the person uh, that will take care of these things. So accept them, because they will stand before the same judgment that we will. So our text, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful 
things. I wonder this morning, are there brothers or sisters of whom you are aware that just think differently about things? I'm not talking about salvation, the fundamentals of the faith. I'm talking about, you know, those little disputable areas, those areas where we have differences of opinion, those areas where we have different scruples, to use the word that's used here. Can you think of somebody like that? Are there people that you struggle with? You know, Paul's word for you here is clear. It is a command. You are to receive them. You are to accept them. And you are to do so because he has accepted them and because they will stand before the same judge that you will. Yesterday I did attend the first half of that men's conference with the Brother Tim and Brother Don. And I agree with them. It was, uh, it was wonderful. The preaching was phenomenal that I heard. Uh, they've both made it very clear to me that I missed out on the best, but uh, it was still wonderful. But then there was the music. You know, I'm a firm believer in blended worship in a music program. Here in this church, we sing a mix of old hymns and, and new choruses. We have a praise team. We have a praise band. But their role is never to perform. Their role is not that. Their role is to assist us in worshiping God through song. And you know what? I don't know if you've been to some other places, but sometimes musicians forget that. Sometimes they consider themselves performers and the song service becomes a concert. And many churches today have chosen that format and, and they have, you know, made it, made it a conscious decision to do so, that they would rather have a concert than congregational singing. They call that worship. I personally struggle with using that word for that. Yesterday's music fell into that category. The percussion and the band were so loud that you could hardly hear the words. The choice of songs seemed to me to be more about showcasing the song leader than about leading us in worship. And as a matter of fact, I looked around the room during several of the songs. Nobody was singing. They were all just standing there, just like you would do if you were listening to a concert. And, you know, I have to confess that as I, as I said, I did not like that at all. Actually, I hated it. To me, it was ugly. It was cacophony. It was gaudy. It was anything but worship. And I stood there. I stood there. I confess. I had my arms folded. I stood there, steam coming out of my ears. I remember the thought going through my mind. You know, if Amy or Beth or Larry or Elena or Josh or Jeff ever try to do this kind of a thing in our church, they're going to be looking for another gig. All these kind of thoughts were going through my mind. And by the way, that would never happen because our musicians understand and are, are good. God has blessed us with godly and talented musicians. I know that. But yeah, that's what I was thinking. Sitting there. God, I can't believe this. I hate this. This is terrible. And then you know what happened? God reminded me what I was preaching today. Receive them. I could just hear it banging into my head. Receive them. Accept them. And I watched these intensifying gyrations that were occurring in front of me. And I struggled with that. God has accepted them. Who are you to judge another servant? These things were just banging around in my head. And I looked again at the faces of these guys. And you know, whatever else I saw there, you know what I saw? I saw a group of guys who loved the Lord. I might not have agreed with what they were doing or how they were doing it or their style. 
But the more I looked at him, the more I saw these are people who love Jesus. And we're on the same team. We're on the same team. So it didn't help me accept the music any. Still hated the music. But it helped me to accept them, my brothers, my sisters, in Christ. And the rest we leave to their master to sort out. Boy said this. He said, let's stop dumping on one another. And let's allow God to deal with each of us, uh, each of his servants, how, when, and as kindly as he will. And while we're at it, let's be thankful that he has dealt as kindly as he has with us. If he had not, we would all be in deep trouble. So what about you, Christian? Do you struggle with some of these kinds of things? Do you struggle with brothers and sisters who think differently than you do? Some this morning might need to come to spend some time and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to accept them as you have accepted me. Help me to receive them as you have received me. Father, we're thankful. Oh, so thankful for the fact that you have received us. Lord, I am not worthy and neither are any of the rest of us. There is no good in us. We fail more than we succeed. We have... uh, Certainly not been shining examples in any way, shape, or form. And yet, Lord, you receive us. You love us. You have accepted us. And you have made us accepted in the Beloved. Forgive us, Father, when we look at others who just have minor differences of opinion to us. And, uh, Lord, we judge them. We look down on them. Help us, Father, instead to learn from what Paul teaches us here to receive them. May we, Father, pay attention to our own game. Recognize that we answer to you. And uh, just like they do. And, Lord, may we, be, uh, may we be right in our attitude as a result. Lord, I know next week we're going to talk about something that tempers this. But for now, for today, help us, Lord, to stop right here. Help us to look around at those who are here with us today. And, Lord, if there's anybody here that we have trouble with, I pray that we would right now, right where we are, bow our heads and ask forgiveness and ask for your help to receive one another. And, Lord, maybe there's others that aren't here but are part of our circle of friends or uh, those that perhaps we've had disagreements with or troubles or difficulties. Lord, just simply because of differences of opinion over minor things, I pray, Lord, help us. If decisions need to be made today, if any of us need to come and just kneel here and say, Lord, help me to be that kind of a believer. Help me to live in Romans 14.1. Then may we do it. And Father, I pray also, if there are people here today who are listening to this and thinking, you know what? I heard one thing in there. I heard about that great white throne judgment. I heard that that's where I'm going. Lord, if there's anybody here who's not certain that they're on their way to heaven, who's never trusted Christ, I pray today that, Lord, that they would step out and come and let us pray with them. Let us show them from Scripture how they can know the reality of those things and never go there, go to heaven when they die. Lord, if there are those who need to make that decision, may they. If there are other things that we need to do today, uh, church membership or baptism or any of those things that uh, are on our hearts and minds that we need to do, uh, bless the invitation and help us to decide rightly as we sing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.